Yep. Welcome to the Avance Podcast. I'm Dan. And I'm Nick. How's it going, buddy? Good. Two things. I have somewhat of a of a Carter Subaru question for you. Okay. And I have something I was watching that's kind of interesting as far as car storage goes. Oh. Uh, I don't know if it's new, but there is a, uh, I think it's called SSR, and it's in Germany. And they are storing cars underground in a in a closed capsule that's full of nitrogen. It stops fires. It stops. Oh. Strategi- you, you also can't go down there and steal anything because you can't breathe. It's um, <laughs> a great stuff to yeah, turn. I was watching. I'm going to send you the video, but it's kind of an interesting theory in the fact that like, it's all robotic. That the car, it, it takes the car down. It stores the car. It stops things from de- de- degenerating, like tires and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say you won't lose any air pressure, yeah. huh? Kind of an interesting theory, huh? I don't know if that would fly in the U.S. because somebody would sue. Yeah, I'm for sure. trying to steal a car. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> but that's true. Uh, I like the idea of it being in Germany. Yeah. Uh, that's really cool. The Germans can get away with that. <laughs> so here's a question. Um, <laughs> keep going. Keep okay, going. I, know. I, I, I heard it when I said it. Um, <laughs> somebody was asking me. I was, I, I was op- had the garage open, and a gentleman came by, and I, 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 was, I had the bikes out because I started them up. And I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to let you answer it. Everybody gets on the internet, and they watch this, and they watch people on the freeway, and they get the speed wobbles. Yes. Okay. What's the best thing to do for a speed wobble? Is it to power to come off the throttle, come onto the brakes? Is it be- what is the best thing to do? Come on a motorcycle, come on the throttle, or come off the throttle and ride the rear brake. Okay, to lighten up the front end. And that's what I thought. I, I didn't Not say the rear, I didn't say the rear brake part. Yeah. I said definitely come off the throttle. But he was asking me, and I was like, oh, that's an interesting thing. And I <laughs> it, think about the it, yeah. best way to prevent it is with a steering stabilizer. Yes. Uh, Scott's steering stabilizer great um, on a vehicle like a Jeep, which is known for the death wobble. A really good. Um, what do you call that? The, the steering stabilizer shock. Uh, You're yeah. asking me. I mean, you see the horizontal oh. shock on our solid oh, axle. Yeah, yeah, the front. Sorry. yeah, yeah. Steering okay, stabilizer. Yeah, it's a steering yeah. stabilizer, I believe. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like that. A good one of those will help. Okay. Um, getting your alignment actually correct will help even more. We were talking more motorcycles, but I mean, yeah. it, it can happen in cars too. And yeah, SUVs, yeah. So, on a yeah. motorcycle, you just want to roll off the throttle and try and ride it out. A little bit of rear brake if you can, but it's. Uh, it's a bad time. It's called the death wobble for yeah, a reason. I've been unfortunately, there. I've so, been there, yeah. and it's yeah. it's really freaky. Uh, it's usually like the, getting your suspension properly tuned. Like if you're on a motorcycle, you want to make sure your suspension is set up for you. Like yeah. any kind of race car, but especially on a motorcycle. Well, he asked me about the monkey, yeah. and I said the, our, our typical thing. I was like, I just stand up, let the, <laughs> let it let go. the mic go away. So yeah. yeah, so okay, that's interesting. Yeah, that's, that, that, that I just thought that might be a kind of fun little Carter Automotive tip of, as far as what to do. Yeah, so, that yeah. is a really good tip. Okay, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna use that one for Carter, and I'm gonna okay. save mine for next time. Then. Okay, there so we another go. one. So, but, right. um, let's introduce our guest. But for, before we do, did you know you know what special day it is? <laughs> do you no no okay. yeah. i got no we do yeah i just do. said it wrong yeah. because it's it's actually uh uh it's women girls and <laughs> i did the only reason i'm making you do it is because i forgot most of girls it. and women in sports day yes is what it is that is it what, is what okay, it is yeah. and yeah. it uh you know we've got a lot going on with women coming up with uh, the women's motorsport summit coming up yeah uh, women in motorsport dirtfish yeah dirtfish coming up next yeah. month some, some notable guests um wish you were going to be here for that uh, our guest tonight is Lynn St. James, who we've had on the show before, thanks to our friends at Park Place, but it's good, always good to catch up with Lynn. Such a, a name in the industry. I see you're wearing your Haggerty uh, shirt. Is that a Haggerty? It's cold nice. here. I'm in, I'm in Phoenix, and I am, like, so cold, so I, ah. I got my Haggerty with my little women in motorsports North America pin, but yeah, it's my, it's my favorite vest. I love this vest. Well, uh, welcome to the show again. Welcome. Well, yeah, it's good you. to see you again. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank I mean, you. We and are I'm, seeing a, a, a lot. Huh? I was just going to say, I've heard your dialogue, and I would like to kill whoever invented speed bumps. I just, 
would like to kill yes. them. Yes, agreed. We agree. <laughs> we agree. We agree. But I was going to say, as far as women in motorsports, I believe we had like nine women at Daytona this year, which is amazing. Yeah. yeah. Right. Were you and down there for, for Daytona? Twenty-four. There were there were two other women in yeah. the Mazda MX-5 Cup, and there was one in the um, the Michelin Pilot Challenge. So yeah, it was. It's finally we got some numbers, and, and as I said, it's not just numbers, but we have really quality drivers. So yeah, like yeah, exactly. Because it's not just numbers. Uh, motorsports is a little, let's say, not forgiving. Because if you're not <laughs> matching, if you're not competitive, you're not going to get a seat just because you're pretty or whatever. You got to be fast. You got to be a good driver. You got to know what you're doing. And this has been a really significant year for women in motorsports, especially though I mean, with Sarah Price in the car for her yep. second place finish, which was awesome. But I mean, like we have a lot of up and coming women drivers that are actually putting down the numbers, uh, mm-hmm. which has always been a challenge in women in sports in general is, is they've got to be competitive across the field. And women, motorsports is really an area where, you know, firsthand women have been competitive for a long time. So let's rehash a little bit. I want to make sure the audience knows like the significance of your career. <laughs> where do we even start? So I'm just going to tell you, this is not the significance of my career, but it, it's kind of waning on me right now. This is my 50th year in motorsports. I started racing Hell 50, yeah. years, 50 years ago in SCCA in a Ford Pinto in showroom stock. So I know it's not significant, but it's how it all started. And the very first road race or anything I had ever seen other than Indy was the 24 hours of Daytona, which is why I go back every year because that's where it all started. So um, I, I just, it all starts somewhere, you know, and and I don't know whether racing found me or I found it, but it happened at the 24 hours of Daytona. And I ultimately got to go back there, obviously, and race many times and, and win and all that. So I just want to just lay that out, that it's been a long journey. <laughs> <laughs> and and you were the first woman to win rookie of the year, correct? At Indianapolis. At the at the Indianapolis 500, yes. Correct. I was the second yeah, woman, second amazing. woman to race there, and and the first to win rookie of the year. Yeah. Yeah, no small feat to say the least. But I mean, you've raced. Let's let's cover SCCA is where you started. I'll, I mean, up yep. through Indy, but I mean, um, I'll put it out for you. The decade of the seventies. I was an amateur racer in um, SCCA, got to go to the runoffs, didn't do well because the car blew an engine and qualified, and then ultimately got to IMSA, and the decade mm-hmm. of the 80s was sports car racing as a Ford factory driver, and I got to do IMSA racing, primarily SCCA Trans Am. Um, you know, I, I won the 24 Hours of Daytona a couple times. I won the 12 Hours of Sebring. I won at Watkins Glen. I won at Road America. I mean, I so I was, you know, really Im- embedded in sports car racing and, tr- and GTP, got to drive the Ford Probe. And, you know, it was just an amazing, got to go to the 24 Hours of Le Mans um, in 89 and 91. So, the, but the, basically the decade of the 80s, the way I look at it, it was my sports car racing experience and achievements and gave it all I got. Um, and then there was, I went to Talladega. I set records at Talladega in the Ford Probe, which is a prototype car that I went back in the stock car in the, the Ford Thunderbird. Um, didn't really have a lot of love for that. And then I thought, what's left? And the only thing left that in my mind that I thought was still achievable, because even though I have great aspirations, I, I look at what's doable, what's possible. And I wanted to drive an IndyCar. Didn't think I'd ever get to race an IndyCar because I had only raced with fenders. And I had no open wheel experience. And so 
Um, but I bugged Dick Simon, the team owner, Dick Simon, who was just a great guy and has given more people opportunities um, than any other team owner. And he gave me the opportunity to drive an IndyCar for the first time. And I did so well. He said, you know, we can do this. He didn't say you can do this. He said, we can do this. And that was in 1988. And it took four years with a lot of reaching out to sponsors, a lot of no's. And in 1992, I actually got JCPenney as a sponsor and went to Dick and 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 showed up at Indy for the month of May. And um, it was like Christmas every day because I was at the race track, not as a spectator, because I used to go there a lot as a spectator. And, you know, we, we qualified well, I think in 21st or something and finished 11th and, and was honored with the Rookie of the Year Award. So um so, and then I went on to run seven Indy 500s, 15 IndyCar races overall. So the decade of the nineties was my open wheel peak, peak opportunity to, to, to fulfill, not just a dream, but to fulfill, I think every potential fiber in my body that maybe said I could do this. <laughs> well, and, and do this, you did. Uh, what, that so you talked about the transition. You'd never been behind open wheel before. What was the most uh, the challenging, the most challenging part of that? I mean, the Indy Five Hundred. Just to give a perspective, was my first oval track race, and the second time that I was ever in an open wheel car. I don't recommend it. I do not recommend it. <laughs> I, I had done Le Mans. I had done you know Daytona. I'd done Talladega. So I'd done a lot of high speed stuff, but. But the hardest thing, I think, in the beginning was that I got totally mesmerized watching my front tires because I couldn't see my front tires when I had fenders, you know, and, and I didn't know what the hell they were doing. I mean, I was turning the wheel and I was driving by feel, um, but all of a sudden I still had the ability to drive by feel, but I had this visual and I would get mesmerized watching my front tires, you know, and, and I thought, stop it. You got to look way ahead, not that your freaking front tires. So. So adjusting to the visual changes, adjusting to obviously running an oval, it's a completely different discipline than it is running a road, a road racing car. Um, the, how you pass, how you attack the corner, how you find your apexes, how, everything. Everything is different on an oval. Um, so it was a huge learning curve, a huge learning curve. But I loved every freaking moment of it. What a rush, too. I mean, I... It's a very viscerally different experience, to say the least. Uh, I would, I think it would freak me out. It, it, it wouldn't freak me out to do it for fun, like to go take a track day and get in like a Formula 3 car and just like figure it out. But to get out there and go race competitively, like here, go be the best at this and actually podium would be the pressure would just be insane. I couldn't I don't think I could handle it. I, I've never thought that I could do that. But now I, even, I know even more that I would be mesmerized by the front tires. Yeah, I probably wouldn't be moving. I'd just be staring at them going, oh, look at that. Look at that. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you got to snap yourself out of it. But that's that's absolutely did, but, but obviously, after those few laps, you, you made yourself be very, you made, you became very comfortable in that car and sort of became one with the car. Did it always kind of challenge you? Yep. Yep. No, that's exactly. I mean, you wear a race car, even if it's a freaking Ford GT or a Ford Mustang. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big suit when you put on, when you get into a sports car. Um, but when you get into an open wheel car, an Indy car, um, I'm sure it's the same with Formula One. I mean, you slide into that car and you wear it. I mean, you feel everything that that car is doing and it's feeling everything. It does everything that you think about. 
I mean, you just think you're going to go ready to turn left and the car seems to go left. I mean, it's so instantaneous. It's so responsive. It's so sensitive. It's so precise. Um, and so you better get your shit together and have your head screwed on so that the, you are thinking precision. You know, you're not hunting and pecking and there's no, you know, I, I, I learned in, in sports car racing, the car's not right. You drive around it, you know, you figure out how to adjust the car if you have adjustments and then you just figure it out. In an Indy car, if the car's not right, you come into the pits. I mean, there's a gajillion adjustments. There's aero adjustments. There's, you know, there's, there's suspension and technical uh, mechanical adjustments they can make that are so finite. I mean, an eighth of an inch of, of just moving a, you know, an air, an air, movement that you change the car on the front wing or the rear wing. And, you know, I mean, this tiny, tiny, tiny adjustments at 220 plus miles an hour are going to make significant difference in the car. So you don't drive around stiff. That's how people crash is because they think they're so good. They drive around it. And I think the blessing I had was that I was such a, I mean, I was so green. I was like, you know, shit, this isn't working. I'm going to come in and talk to the crew because, you know, something's not right as opposed to, oh, I can figure this out. I'll drive around it, you know? And so um, the sensitivity and the the mechanics of the car, the capabilities of the car are are just extraordinary and, and wonderful. And so you just got to be connected to the car and you got to, you know, you've got to understand when it's not right, come in and tell them and, Let's, they'll figure it out. We'll figure it out together, but they'll figure it out. Man. You can tell it's not right. I filled my race suit, so you need to fix that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'll be back. <laughs> so, yeah. That thing's broken. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't even know where to start with nope. something like that. It's nope. so out of my out of my ballpark. I, can, I feel like I know cars pretty well, but when you put me in something open-wheeled, I would just be like, I don't know. <laughs> so obviously it was a dream of yours always to do that. What did you do to train to come up to that moment? Like you said, that was the only second time you'd been in the car. Did you have to, was it a different type of training than you did before with your racing career? Not, not really. Um, I mean, the physical training that I did and, and then, you know, there wasn't a lot available to us back then. There were not simulators. I make it sound like it, it wasn't ancient, but it was a number of years ago. Um, and so we didn't have simulators. We didn't have a lot of, a lot of, of resources, but I was lucky in the late eighties, um, two guys, two professors from McGill university came down to Indianapolis and they set up a whole testing program that was, um, that it was optional for the drivers to go through. It was called Dr. It was Dan, Dr. Dan Derisi and Dr. Dan Marisi and, um, Dr. Jacques Delaire from McGill University. They had worked with Ayrton Senna and Nigel Mansell in Formula One um, and had developed a protocol of testing, mental and physical testing that you could you could do against against a against the basic data that they had developed um, from Nigel and and Ayrton. And so um, and a lot of the indie drivers went through it. I was the first female and I was the first non indie driver or non open wheel racer who went through the, who went through their whole testing program in the late eighties in Indianapolis. And it was, it was a, it made a huge difference in my understanding of myself and my understanding of where I was weak and where I, I had to work. So um, it really changed my whole 
testing and training and, and protocols of what I did, you know, so, and I, luckily I did that in the late eighties, I think it was 88. And so that gave me time to start adjusting how I trained. So by the time I got to India in 92, I was a better driver. I was a better human. I was a better athlete. I was a better race car driver athlete. Um, and, and so my visual work that they had a, a whole programming that you could do on your computer um, to, to, to do anticipatory reaction time and, and, and reaction time. Pit fit and other pit fit right now has all of that data, all of that stuff available to the drivers. I mean, Scott Dixon does it. I mean, Hinchcliffe does it. All of the guys do it now and the gals. I mean, they, they've got a whole business now, but that didn't exist back then. And so, and a lot of it is mental. I mean, it, it's, you know, you, you got to train your brain. I mean, your brain, you're like nothing more than a human computer. And so whatever input you get into your brain is what's going to happen automatically when you're going 220 or 30 miles an hour on the racetrack. So it's, it's, it, it, there's a, so many pieces of the puzzle that I was gifted and enabled to have access to that helped me at the time I needed it. Um, I, I always wished I could have had that sooner, had everything sooner and I'd been younger and I'd been better and blah, blah, blah. But it, in reality, the safety of the cars, the performance of the cars, the access to information, um, the access to training and, and all that, it actually came to me at a time that helped me be ready when I made that big leap. Cause it was a leap to go from what I was doing to, to, to go to IndyCar. So it was, yeah. And those guys were just That's all. Were always available to me. I mean, I could, you know, I could call them. They sent me little notes that they put on the, on the, uh, in the garage on the, on the, um, uh, it was just, it was, it was magical. It was magical. That's really cutting edge research and technology. You really got into at an interesting time. That's really cool. I the, just the ability to process information at that speed blows my mind because I've been in some pretty good high speed runs. And even at above 150, I think people who haven't gone that speed don't realize how fast things come at you. I mean, it's like your first time. I can't imagine going above 200. It's just like there's so much. I mean, you're on a track in a controlled environment, but 200's the threshold. Because I, I, I remember when I mean the first time I went over 200 was at Daytona. So you know you, but that's I don't know how to explain it. But it seems like you know if you go from 150 to 160, yeah, there's. 160 to 170. Yeah. You know, you kind of get up, you got to get up on the wheel. You got to get your brain going a little faster, but somehow it's like mm -hmm. when you go 200 and you go 201, you go 202. It's almost like going 10 miles an hour faster. So the exponential difference, you know, I mean, I remember, I forget what year, I think it was 93 or 94. It was my second or third year that I was kind of stuck at 221 average speed, which means we were going like 230 at and and I, I knew the car was my mind. <laughs> I knew the car could go. I, the car was so freaking good. I said, I know it's there, but I don't know where it is. And I don't want to hit the wall finding it. And I remember telling Dick, I said, Dick, Dick, team, you know, Dick Simon, my team owner. I said, Dick, the car is so good. And I, I know I could go faster, but I don't know where. And I don't know. I don't have enough experience. And I said, so would you put Raul? Raul Bozell was a teammate and, and he'd been on the pole and, or on the front row. And, you know, I mean, Raul was a very experienced driver and so indie driver particularly. And so I said, would you put Raul in the car? So he puts Raul in the car and Raul goes out 
Yeah, I think he did like 222 average, an, a mile an hour faster than me. But that mile an hour faster is an average speed all the way around is big. And he comes back in and I'm like, so Raul, tell me, you know, what did you do? Or how was it? And Raul gets out of the car and he goes, the car's good. That's all he gave me. I knew the car was good. He goes, the car's good. And I went out and I went a mile an hour faster than he did. And then he got pissed off and, you know, and that was the last help I got from him. But, um, you know, so I, I don't know. I, for me, it was maybe a lack of confidence because I had a lack of experience and, and that gave me the confidence to just, you know, just do it. So, but a mile, the key I think that a mile an hour average speed is hugely noticeable at, at those over 200 mile an hour range when you're in that in that category. Yeah, and it's a noticeable difference in time, obviously, at that well, speed. Yeah, yeah. But I think there's a, a fine line there between inexperience and confidence and getting it really, really wrong. Because if, you, <laughs> yes. if one inexperience goes a little too far on that scale, like that can be, I mean, that's, that's a catastrophic ending to that scenario. So yeah, yeah. not a lot of forgiveness at 200 plus. Yeah. There's no owie or ouch, <laughs> you know, it's, it's. Yeah. Well, actually, that's a good segue. If, if unless you guys, no, you're good. Uh, I was going to ask you through the years of motorsports and all the races you've done, is there a moment that really, that jumps out? He says like, this is this is not good. I mean, because oh. not every crash is a. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty, but not every crash is a. Oh, this is you know. It's like, well, I'm crashing. This sucks because my position in the race. You know, your safety systems are there, and you know how that handles. I mean, everybody's you've crashed, but is there any time you've been in the car and you're like, I don't know how this is going to end. <laughs> I've had that's every day I get in a car. <laughs> <laughs> Seattle driving. Seattle driving. That's every day. I don't know how this is going to end. Yeah, so. I've, I've had quite a few what I call mysteries um, in my crashes. If you go to YouTube and put my name in and crashes, a number of them come up. But um, but there's three that come to mind. Um, and you learn more from failures. You learn more from those things than you do from successes because you have so many more failures than you do successes. Um one was when I was running the Aston Martin Nimrod in Atlanta in the IMSA race. And man, I was in a groove. I was in the zone. And, you know, it's an endurance race. And I was getting ready to, I knew we were close to it. And we were going to make a pit stop and do a driver change. And I was just, man, I was in the zone. And all of a sudden, I lost the car and I crashed. And so we were out, obviously, and I just could not figure out what happened. You know, the, what you have to do is learn from, you have to learn, you have to understand why and learn from something. Otherwise, it, it's useless. It becomes a useless disaster, you know, a mistake or whatever. Um, it's a never waste of failure. Yeah. yeah, it's a waste of failure. So I literally for hours and hours and hours just kept walking around. There was really no excuse. And I finally figured out what happened was the car continued to get lighter because I was like with burning fuel I was getting and I was using the same line. I was using the same apex. I was using the same. I was not adjusting. This was back in like 82. I was not adjusting to the to the change that the car was making. I was in I was in a almost a rote. You know, this was the every lap I was doing everything exactly the same. And I was in the zone, but I wasn't I wasn't in touch with the car. So that so I learned um, and. So that one is comes to mind. Obviously, 1986 at Riverside, um, I was like 
racing the Ford Probe. We had a yellow. I got in the car. I was the second driver. Um, we go, we go green and I feel this bump. And, and next thing I know I'm in, I'm crashing into another car and I'm a missile and I'm on fire and I'm upside down. And I mean, it's, it's horrific. It's the one that it's one of the ones that will come up on, on YouTube. And I'm like, what, the, what happened? You know, I mean, it was like, I had, well, obviously I found out, I mean, I got hit and then it forced me to, into another car and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So um, so shit happens. And, you know, there, that was a case of, of, of somebody, you know, screwed up and it caused me. Um, and then I guess the third one is probably the last, my last big crash, um, was in 2000 in Indy in qualifying. And, um, and I was in the zone and warm up lap was perfect. And the car was perfect. And I get the green and I go into turn one. And the next thing I know, I just, the car is gone. I mean, I just lose the car completely. And I hit the outside wall, the inside wall, totally destroy the car. Um, and I couldn't figure out what happened. Um, and it wasn't until that, that hours later um, when Derek Daly, who was doing TV commentating, said, Lynn, come into the booth. And I got to watch the replay of it and found out that the tire separated from the wheel which is why I totally lost the car. Yeah, that's because a, I was thinking it was me. I mean, the, the first thing is, what did I do? You know, how did I screw up? Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, you know, those are, you know, I have others, but those are things that come to mind. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a, uh, we were talking on our last episode, we were talking about the Nürburgring and how the, the was it? Uh, Tom, is that his name? Yeah, I was talking about yes, flow states and you get into a flow state where everything just feels right and you're feeling it. And then I've, that's something I've been chasing after driving my whole life because you find it on motorcycles a lot easier than cars, but you get it now and then, and it's a great feeling, but there is nothing more jarring than an interruption in that flow state when you feel like everything is aligning perfectly and everything's handling the way you want and everything's driving, just everything goes the way you want. All of a sudden it goes a little wrong and it's ex just the unsettling feeling of it is it almost makes you nauseous at the time, even when you don't crash. <laughs> so having that, ooh, walking away from that, and not knowing what's going on, it's got to be the worst. I'm glad you were able to come to the, the understanding and learn from all those, yeah, even when they're not is. your fault. It's rough. Lana, I want to change subject a little bit. Obviously, with as we said before, National Girls and Women in Sports Day, you've been a huge advocate of women, in, not in all sports and in motorsports. When did you know that you wanted to take that on as your passion and really help women to get into this, this genre of sports and, and, and in general get into sports? Thank you for asking that because it was never on my radar. <laughs> I mean, I was all about how the hell could I learn to be a better race car driver and win races. And, and then uh, the year I was running uh, SCC in the Trans Am series, I got invited to go to New York um, as a guest of Anheuser-Busch who was sponsored the series back then. It was called the, uh, the Budweiser Trans Am series. And I got to go to New York and to this event that was put on by the Women's Sports Foundation, which I'd never heard of. And I got to meet these amazing women athletes that I'd watched on television who I admired. I got to meet Billie Jean King and Donna DeVarona and so many others that were just like, oh, my God, you know. And it was the first time that I had been around women athletes, particularly they were not only the elite athletes and the Olympic athletes and the professional athletes, but I just I met like surfers and sailors and, you know, all I mean, 
just all kinds of different women athletes at this event. And of course they're like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm a race car driver. And of course they're like, well, what's that? I mean, you know, I mean, there was, just, they didn't know anything about, you know, I, so I was kind of the odd duck out, but when you meet, I met Billie Jean King and, and I, I found out about the, what the women's sports foundation was doing and you know, how they were advocating. Um, they were giving grants, they were advocating for women to have opportunities to play sports and they were, of course, very involved with Title IX, which I went to a girls' school, and so I and I was pre-Title IX. But then I started to understand that because I went to a girls' school, I played sports from seventh to twelfth grade. If I had gone to a public school at that time, because it was pre-Title IX, I would have never been given the opportunity to play sport. And if I if I didn't have that opportunity to be a, to play sports, even though I wasn't a great athlete, I absolutely am convinced that I would have never had the courage later to then pr- try to pursue driving a race car. I mean, so it, 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 it just, the, it connected the dots. And then Billie Jean, who is the most amazing, powerful, influential human being you'll ever want to meet in this planet. And I mean, she just absolutely, it's not about you. It's about how you can impact others. And so, you know, she's like, you are the most powerful while you're competing. You get out there and you make a difference. I'm like, holy shit. I mean, it was like I had all of a sudden this responsibility um, that it wasn't just about me. And so it took a while before I kind of found my way and I volunteered for the organization um, and then ultimately got on their board. And then ultimately I became the president. of. And, and so, you know, it was that was the whole turning point for me um, was to understand as an athlete, even though I had very critical, hard goals and, and all of that for myself, that there was, I was, it was much bigger than just about me. And so that has guided me um, from the time that I, that when I got to Indy and I got so much fan mail and I realized I needed to do something and I created a driver development program and people like Danica Patrick and Sarah Fisher and Melanie Troxell and Aaron Crocker, you know, came to my driver development program and I did everything I could to help them. And, um, and then of course, fast forward to now, um, I co-founded with Beth Peretta, Women in Motorsports North America, because now timing is all, it's all about timing in this world about anything, whether it's technology or podcasts or whatever it's, if if it doesn't exist or it's not the right time, you're you're not going to be able to get traction. And um, when we created Women in Motorsports North America, it was during the pandemic and we created these Zoom calls and we got these people that were had a common interest and a common passion to want to make a difference. And the next thing you know, we created a not-for-profit called Women in Motorsports North America. We're not even two years old yet. And we've got, um, you know, events happening. We've got our Women in Motorsports, uh, Women with Drive uh, Summit, where we're doing that every year annually. And we'll just did the third one in Phoenix last November. Uh, we move it around. We had over 450 men and women, and this is about men and women helping the sport grow, helping the sport, you know, it not just invite more women, but to celebrate the women and elevate the women. And, and, and that's how the sport's going to grow. I mean, if you guys, if the guys just keep talking to themselves, the sport is going to die because they're, you're all going to die, you know, and you got new kids that will come in, but it'll never grow. So we just really want to empower women and invite women and 
and, and just help grow the sport and help make a difference. And, and the industry is now saying, we want this. We understand that this is a value that'll help our sport grow and help us be better. And so whether it's in engineering, whether it's in marketing, whether it's in management, whether it's in hospitality, whether it, you know, race car drivers, I mean, crew members, I mean, it's all across the board. It's, it's, it's happening. And now there's just a lot of momentum and a lot of, um, a lot of energy and a lot of the people are coming to us and asking us, how can, how can we help? And, and this is, that's exactly what has to happen. So it's pretty exciting right now. Lynn, I, 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 you, you meet so many people. The first time you and I met was down in Arizona, and we did a, we, I, I interviewed you, and we talked about craftsmen coming into the industry, that that was the younger generation not really getting into that and being able to use an English wheel and work on old cars and work on cars and, and the importance of that, and not only women doing that, but men and everybody. And it was, a, it, like I said, I, I've ever since that meeting, it, it's always been a passion of mine when I talk to younger people to talk to them about this and the fact that everybody wants to go be a doctor and things like that, but it's really cool to go work on cars or learn how to build things. And, th and so I really appreciate you for kind of inspiring me to be out there and talk to people. And, oh, and, and I thank you for that. So well, good. Well, that yeah. was when I was an ambassador for the RPM foundation. And so, yes, yeah, yeah, restoration, correct. preservation yeah. and mentorship. Yeah. Which I still support yeah. them, but um, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's like, I don't want to call it niches, but there's just there. It's like niches. There's so many different, disciplines. And if, if people don't know, I mean, guidance counselors at schools don't talk about this stuff, you know, and so somebody has to, we have to, and I believe we have that responsibility. If you have a career in this industry, let people know about it. And particularly young people who are kind of looking for what the heck they want to do. Well, and it's a, a very good industry to be in right now, to say the least. I mean, do, do you know what the average dealer charges around here per hour now? What the actual going rate is? Oh, $60, $70 an hour probably? Oh, man, are you out of touch? Because oh. I was too. Okay. Uh, yeah, did you know it's over $200 an hour right now for okay. dealership labor? Mm. So if you're looking to be, you know, it, yeah, it's going to be, it's a tough living. I'm not going to sugarcoat anybody. If you want to be a tech out there, you're going to work hard for it. Male, female, doesn't matter. You're not going to get a lot of breaks. You got to be good at your job and you got to deliver. But it's an awesome, respectable career that can net you a lot of money. Uh, it, you're not just going to be, I just want to get people out there to know, like, you're not, it's not the old days. It's not the fifties. The cars are a lot more complicated. Your part, which was still harder in my opinion, because I've worked on carburetors, but I mean, your, your part computer tech, I mean, the, like even now they're doing so much more than they've ever done. That it's such a high skill career that it's really respectable and amazing to watch people who know who, who can do that for a living. I'm just like, it's, it's impressive. You can get into the automotive industry in your older years. I mean, Carl did it. He retired right. and then became exactly. A, by the way, uh, Carl is the reason Lynn is here this week, and, and um, so he would shout out to Carl. But he's yeah, hiding on the he's call hiding here on as well. the call. But yes, um, I wanted to ask you, people that are coming to you now, the younger people that are coming to you now, what do you see them most excited about in the automotive in their automotive career? Hmm. I well, I have to admit, I think it's in the engineering. You know, because in the engineering. The engineering um, discipline on any team in any, whether it's IndyCar or NASCAR or I mean, even in NASCAR, um, is that they, they have really expanded the engineering and the technology. I mean, I, I hope we don't, you know, I hope we don't go over the top and come back down and, and, and get all messed up. But I think that there's there are certainly engineering opportunities available in all of forms of motorsports. Um, I mean, even data acquisition or data, you know, acquiring data and, and analyzing yeah. data, um, you know, converting ticket, how you buy a ticket, converting, 
you know, so whether you're working for the racetrack or working for a race team, I mean, so I think technology, I, I don't want to call it, maybe it isn't engineering, it's technology. So I think the technology space in motorsports has the biggest growth potential. And, and, and I still believe that racing is a microcosm of life because it shows how men and women can work together and compete against each other in a very intense, you know, you can bullshit in a business, you can delay things, you, you're hiding. In a business, you can hide. In motorsports, you can't hide. If you screw up, if, you know, everybody's in the stands are looking at, and, and judgmental about what you should have done, you know, as a race team. And, and so it's a very intense and competitive and, and you're, you're, you're very exposed. And so, um, and it really rewards the best. You can't be mediocre and be successful in our sport. But I, I think t technology is the biggest growth potential, sustainability, you know, trying to figure out how could we continue to push the envelope and, and be competitive and all that, but not abuse, you know, our resources and, so, I mean, I think sustainability, but that's technology, you know, that's just all mm -hmm. the technology kind of aspects of, of the sport. So I think that's where the biggest growth is. And that's what, and that's what, who the kids are. The kids are coming from, you know, from an educational um, experience where technology is what they're studying and what they're interested in. That's interesting. I have a coworker who's down at King of the Hammers right now. Hmm. He's a data, he, he works in data science for yeah. us, which is a very, very hard job. Uh, one of the hardest jobs in engineering and tech is being a data scientist because it's, it's, and that's let's just say it's, it's the kind of they're, they're driving over rocks and doing all different kinds of stuff. Right. And so like he's using data, data to help design re and reinforce uh, the Jeep that he's running down yeah. there. Huh. Like it, it's a serious thing for them to look at, you know, stress and failure limits. Cause they're like, we want to reduce weight as much as possible, but we're racing the hardest, yeah. like physically abusive race. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's like, where do we, you know, let's 3D, 3D print some suspension components. And if you've, um, speaking of which, have you seen a um, little segue? Have you seen any of the coverage of King of the Hammers from Can-Am specifically hmm. on their, you saw how they did the new front suspension on the Maverick that yeah. wraps over the front of the tires. They've released some footage from them racing down there that will blow your mind. Hmm. So those things going sideways off 40 foot drops, hitting the side Taking of the tire, yeah. hitting the suspension, and then just keep going yeah. like nothing's going on. And everybody looked at that when it first came out and they thought, there's no way that's going to work. They're going to hit that thing on the rocks. The suspension's going to explode. And those things, talk about putting your money where your mouth is. I have never been more impressed with a, with a manufacturer showing off and kind of like showing the haters what's up <laughs> than seeing what Can-Am did with that front suspension on that side-by-side. -side. <laughs> it is amazing to watch technology work. You know, I didn't, I, think, even, I didn't even know about the King of the Hammers until um, I met Jesse Combs. Oh, oh yeah, oh, we all miss Jessie. Yeah. I know. Yeah, I know. She was very special. Yeah, I think to to kind of bring that back in the fact, I've I've always said I'm not a NASCAR fan, but I will watch hours of the tech that goes into the designing the cars. I will watch the tech on, on anything designing something. I think it's so cool to see how something works. And I mean, obviously, I want to go out and see how how it affects on the racetrack and things like that. But I think the tech is is what draws a lot of people in. And like you said, our cars, you know, you pop the hood these days, it's all electronical. You have to have some type of engineering degree to even begin to work on some of these cars. I mean, you look at, you know, we have a good friend that, that works in, in, the, in the automotive industry. And he was talking about the fact that one of their big, large sedans, that if, if you could total it out in a, in a hailstorm because there's so much technology in the roof that oh, it would wow. take so much, to, you know, it's just, it's yeah. amazing to me. But 
I also like the idea of the old school and I come, you know, we're children of the, of the 70s and things like that where you could pop a hood, climb under the hood, work on the carburetor in the rain, you know, and you knew what was under there. It was simple. The gas came in one way, the, you know, the exhaust went out another way. So saw, um, there's something some, about the simplicity. I saw some beautiful engines and beautiful, um, you know, just simple but beautiful engines this last week, this this last Sunday at uh, in Miami at the Motor Car Cavalcade where they – you know, it's a pretty wide open, bizarre kind of, there's not, their categories are, are, are very wide open. But I mean, there was a kid that built a, a, a Nissan uh, engine that, I, I mean, the thing was gorgeous, but you could, you could understand everything about it. You know, it was a, a Nissan from like the 70s, you know, like it was a, a Z car. And, um, and there were some other, there was a, a Shelby Cobra. I mean, there was a guy that did a Viper that was just unfreaking real. I mean, he had nitrous in the back and all that stuff, but it's just, you could understand it when you look at, when you look under the hood, you could, and we were actually judging engines. Um, you can yeah. look under the hood and, and see it and understand it. You know, a couple of Ferraris there where you couldn't even see it. I mean, it was just all. Yeah. All like that, that's, that's what a Viper needs is more nitrous because the Vipers were safe before, but put nitrous <laughs> on it. Great idea. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? It was bizarre. Yeah. No, I get it. I mean, I love, I love bizarre. So, well, pre OBD, pre OBD tuning, it was pretty much just if you add more boost, you add more fuel, and then when it starts flaming out, you cut, you just start reducing the bring fuel. It back. Yeah. <laughs> you bring it bring back. back. It yeah. was actually oddly low tech compared to what we have now, where it's like, I mean, I was looking. So, Garb, I'm not going to spoil this from yet. Got a new vehicle and it has a uh, twin turbo V8 under the hood. And with a tune, off-the-shelf tune, you can gain another 100 horsepower and 130 foot-pounds of torque, still meet emissions, and still get and still keep it under warranty. Wow. Is he a father wow. now? Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's his family. It's yeah. his family it's car. It's okay. a family yeah. car so, yeah. that's going to do zero to 60 in, you know, sub four seconds. So congratulations it's, to him, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Lynn, anyway. were you, are you a person that likes to work on your cars? Do you, do you enjoy that? No. No? Um no, I'm fast. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like to drive. I mean, I I learned. I remember when I had my Pinto, um, my my very first race car, and it was my street car. And and my husband said, um, "Okay, you're going to take the engine apart and put it back together again." Um, and then I did, and so that I learned where the pistons and just how the engines all worked. And of course, I said, "But I there's these parts. I still have this box of parts left. I don't worry about it." <laughs> That's <laughs> fine. You didn't need those. It, that's it's called weight, added weight. It's weight savings. Yeah, it's weight savings. You don't need those. Yeah. yeah no, I, oh, I, was, I was not. I like to understand it, but I, I just, I, I don't have the aptitude to um, actually, you know, work on it. They wouldn't even, and when I got to racing, they wouldn't even let me put the decals on the car because I never got them straight. So. I suffer from that. Nick has got the, Nick is the creative side in our friendship. And uh, like, I, I can't. Any, anything for me, it's like it's not sem it's not symmetrical. It's not you know perfectly even and looks this way. Like that that's me. Nick is like no 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 do it this way so it actually looks good. <laughs> you want to know the bane of my existence as far as stickers is putting tabs on a license plate and getting them straight because <laughs> yes. I have to stare at them for a year if they're crooked. So yeah, I just I had to, I just went through that stress like fifteen minutes in my garage going no uh, no nope, nope. like I had blue tape on my license plate. So yes, yeah, I get that. Yeah, <laughs> but what, I, what I was able to do, which I really was pretty proud of, actually, is that I was able to understand the systems of how these, how the race car works, how the car works, and sometimes I I could predict, or or um, not predict, but I could describe 
well enough that I could, you know, whether it was electrical or if it was fuel, if the, if the thing was missing. I mean, I, I had a great ear. I, I really, I remember going to Indy with my guys, buddies from the gas station. And I, I said, the cars are going so fast. I can't, I can't tell who's, who's in what. I mean, this was back a long time ago. And they said, listen to the engine, listen to the resonance of the engines. And you'll tell whether it's an off or whether it was a, a, a Ford. And so I, I, I developed an ear and I developed um, understanding sometimes the smells and the sounds um, and to be able to predict or, or describe to the, you know, the real text um, what was going on. And, and I have a good visual, I'm a very visual person. So I literally would visual the systems. I would visual, visualize how, how the engine was running, how the, the brakes, everything. I would visualize everything. And so I, I got a good sense of it, but I, I'm not one that could work on it for sure. Yes, but like you said, any good race car driver or bad race car driver may they not be able to work on their machine, but they can tell you what's wrong with it while they're driving it. And yeah. the fact of you know, so, which is important. Or at least we've heard from other people in this podcast, they can tell you what they're feeling, and then they have a good relationship with their crew who can tell them why yeah. it's happening, <laughs> and that's really important too. Yeah. Yeah. No, you can always make up a sound. It's going cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Oh, well, we know what that is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was. Uh, what's life like for you now? You've, you've been, you 50 years, you've been racing. Um, I know you, you know, all the work you've talked about before, but like, what's your driving life now? What's, what's life like for Lynn St. James now? Well, because of women in motorsports North America, I'm working hard. I mean, it's literally a full-time job, even though I'm not getting paid as a full-time job as a volunteer, <laughs> but, um, and I'm trying to stay current. So I go to races. I, I try to make sure I go to a drag race, to a stock car race, to an indie car race, to a sports car race, you know, to, uh, I mean, even go-kart race and, quarter midgets. And, you know, I try to hit every form of motorsports once a year to stay current because I can't give advice based on what I did or what happened 10 years ago, five years ago. And it changes fast. So I, I, I go to a lot of events, um, these kind of, kind of concours and, and which was not my thing um, a few years ago, but uh, until a few years ago when I got invited to be like a VIP judge. And so I, and I, you know, I did, Pay attention, so I, I do know fair about cars, and I and I love to learn. So I mean, when I go to it and I judge at these concourses, I'm usually with a really experienced judge. You know, some of them are, are you know designers and engineers from the OEMs, or they're they're guys that have been doing this for years. And so I uh, I've learned that I can learn quickly and contribute to the to the group to the team. Um, and I love cars, so I love going to these car shows. And, um, and then I, you know, I make speaking appearances and, um, I'm, so I'm just, I'm busy on the road I'm, and I'm busy learning and I'm busy staying current and staying relevant. And sometimes I get honored like at Amelia Island a few years ago as the honoree, which was a huge deal. Um, so, you know, I get gifts sometimes like that that are cool. We always talk to our guests about the current automotive industry. Is you, are you seeing anything out there, cars, technology that you really like? No, I mean, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very confused, and I think so is the industry. I mean, I get automotive news every week. I mean, I stay very current with what's happening in the industry. Um, and I can tell that, I mean, everybody's, they're flailing right now trying to figure out, you know, what to do um, and, and how, to, how to market it. And, and, you know, I think it's a, it's a very disruptive time right now in the industry. It's not just as far as electric versus, you know, ice. I mean, it, it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, I, I've always 
so I, I learned because the, the decade I was with Ford, um, decade the 80s when I had Ford as a sponsor, I was really also given the gift of being able to go to the factories and go to and work with the designers and engineers and, and, and test drive the cars. And so I really learned, I mean, I, the more I learned, the more amazed a car ever gets built, you know, because of all the processes it has to go through and the approvals and yada, yada. And so, um, so I, I see what right now the industry is just in a very disruptive state. And so I'm, um, I, I mean, I'm impressed with the power, the responsive power of an electric vehicle, but I'm still thinking of a usability. I'm a very practical person uh, when it comes to, a, you know, driving a car on the street. And I, I want to have access to fuel or to, I want, I want my car to always be able to go. I don't want to ever feel vulnerable and I don't. And, and I, I think to be able to organize your life around, you know, the kind of things that I, that you have to organize your life around if you have these alternative um, sources of power. Um, and every car I ever get in, I don't care how much it costs, I find very quickly things that I, I don't, that don't make no sense to me that I just go, who the hell put that there? Why did they design that? I mean, so, which is why the engineers liked actually when I test drove cars, because I would pick I would pick out things. I mean, the seat design. Oftentimes, the car suspension was actually not that bad, but it felt like shit because of the seats, you know. And so, you know, oops. sorry. <laughs> no, that was awesome. That was awesome. I don't care what it was. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a great ringtone. That's a great ringtone. We approve. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah. So I, I mean, I'm not terribly excited about you know, the production vehicles in today's market right now. I think, I think they're struggling and, and I, I see there's a lot of variety of stuff out there, but I, I, if I was a consumer that literally was trying to go out there and buy a car it, it, and I will be, I, I am a consumer that in another six months, I'm going to have to figure out what kind of car to get. And I'm like, I have no idea. I have no idea. That new Dark Horse Mustang is uh, just saying that thing is quite the uh, feat if you want to reward your friends at Ford. They've done a very nice job with that thing, to say the least. Yeah. Finally. I mean, and and automotive makers are now pulling back from electricity. Like I saw BMW starting to pull back. They're going to start to try to go towards hybrid. Or not hybrid, but hydrogen. Hydrogen. Yeah. Yeah. Now they're all exploring that, you know. Yeah. I thought we tried that. (laughs) Well, electricals heavy yeah it's not slow but it's exceptionally heavy it's, expensive it's great to on produce. the environment though <laughs> yeah it's it's not that great for the environment it's, there's worse things don't be wrong but yes. uh, it's it's people don't want it yeah if it wasn't for mandates we wouldn't even be buying well, it that's just, the there's, there's all yeah. this money and tooling exactly well how the you know how the mandates come in the government i mean i in 1981 one of the first things i did for ford motor company was drive a ford escort from california la to new york across country on methanol fuel because it was American Energy Week and it was when they were coming out with all, because it was right uh, after the 70s when, you know, we had all the cool. fuel crises. And, and I mean, so it, there were struggles going on that, back then, you know, in the 80s, trying to figure it out. <laughs> Looking at it from a, my project management hat and a cost perspective, I think the logical move is for them to go, the companies that have invested too heavily in electric and are not selling they need to go hybrid because then they don't have to eliminate all their tooling or create all new tooling. It'll save them a ton of money to go hybrid. There's a certain, tra- when you're making a big change that usually there's a transition, you get to the change. Hybrid was around and it was like, they just bailed mm-hmm. and, and walked away from it and went straight to electric instead of doing the hybrid thing. 
my logic. I'm glad to see Toyota made that stand. Yeah. Yeah, to- Toyota. Toyota really did a great job because uh, looking at their their new SUVs, the new Lexus GX just came out. Mm-hmm. It looks great, by the way. But by putting the hybrid drive system on the transfer case or in the center instead of at the wheels, one, they get a much more effective hybrid system with a ton of torque, but it doesn't add nearly as much weight. And it's a... Uh, you can get a really as long effective as you can't hybrid. crush it off road. Well, <laughs> it's in the most protected place possible, yeah, which is like so that you can if you're it's a very difficult sell to get guys that are typically off road in Tacomas and Forerunners to go into something like that because of the weight. So they're like, how do we do this as minimally as possible and actually put something out people want? And they actually did a pretty good job of it. I got to give yeah. them credit. I'm impressed. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Well, uh, Carl had to go, so he he apologized. He said, yeah. got to drop. Thanks, Lynn. Hope to get back to you later soon. Um, so, I'm sorry he stalked you wherever we, where we found you, Lynn. Uh, we're, we're glad to have you on, but, you know, he was so excited. He, we, we, I told him I needed guests. He's like, I'm going to call Lynn. And I'm like, well, excellent awesome. idea. We love Lynn. <laughs> we so, into yes. each other at Daytona at the 24 hours. So that's, yes. yeah. That's good. Yes. That's some, some, somebody told me they gave him an over-the-wall pit pass. I think that's a mistake. But uh, <laughs> yeah. He just wanted to look special. Well, yeah. <laughs> where, will you, uh, where will you be next on your uh, constant life on the road and touring? Well, I've got a couple of meetings um, out of, you know, in Charlotte and in Daytona Beach in, in this month. But my next event um, will be at Amelia Island um, yeah. the first weekend in March. Yeah. I mean, so I, I've gone to that many years. And then, as I said, I was honored uh, three years ago. And that was really, really special. So that's where I'll go. And then I hoped maybe get to go to St. Pete to the IndyCar race. I, I don't think I'm going to make Sebring. I don't know. And, you know, just trying to figure out March. There's a lot of stuff that starts happening. And then hopefully be at Long Beach. I always try to, the 24 hours of Daytona and Long Beach were kind of my two anchors of making sure I always do those two events. Sure. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. It's always wonderful to see you and kind of catch up with you and see what you, the wonderful things you're doing for women in motorsports and motorsports in general. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Well, it's good for to talk sure. to you guys again. And I'm yeah. glad that we were able to celebrate National Girls and Women in Sports Day, even though this is going to air yes. later. Yes. But yeah. I mean, but March is Women's History Month. So everybody needs to kind of remember that. And I think March 8th is International Women's Day. And so, you know, there's a lot happening in the world and we like to celebrate celebrating is good yep it lets people march 2nd is yeah march 2nd is the women in motorsports summit at dirtfish and uh, as usual josie rimmer has knocked it out of the park with her guest list Uh, Uh, you should be joining us for that by the way just saying what a what a perfect spot for you to be well hopefully in the future Uh, she's got michelle mouton and it doesn't get much better than that for particularly rally type driving so that's that that's Dan's dream woman. There's nothing about Michelle. He got to talk to Michelle last year, and I've never seen him that like goofy. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure I was in love with Michelle before I knew what being yeah. in love with a girl was. <laughs> so I started watching her race Pike Peak, and I was a little kid, and I'm like going, "Wow, I, I, know. Want, I want to be, I, I want to be, I want to be like her." <laughs> yeah, she's one of my heroes, but she's, she's tough. She was a, she's a, I mean, she's tough. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're both badasses in my books. So. Agree <laughs> to say the least. Agree. Again, Lynn, thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. All right, great. Thanks, guys. For this episode of the Avance Podcast, as always, I'm Nick. I'm Dan, and don't just get there. Enjoy the drive.